0: Fair dinkum. G'day guys, welcome to the Fair Income Podcast. We've got a very special one for you today. We've got former Socceroos captain, Mr. Craig Foster on the podcast. Um, he's not only a footballer, but also an activist, an author, and he is probably most prominent for his commentary on uh, SBS, especially when World Cups come around and stuff. So I want to say welcome to Craig.
1: Craig. Hi Suhail, how
0: are you going? Nice to join you. Nice nice to see you too. Um thank you for joining us. It's actually an honor for us. All football heads here in the in the room. So it's good Great to, to it's, yeah. it's good to have you on. Um I want to start off by saying obviously you're currently in Sydney, so you're struggling with a bit of a lockdown at the moment. How's things down there?
1: Well, you know, we're largely unaffected here, whether it's uh, my family or myself, I get out uh, as an essential worker. Most mornings of the week, I go to a community center in Marrickville in the inner west of Sydney and volunteer pack food hampers for people. Of course, the need is, you know, extreme at the moment and growing. So there's a lot of stress on all of the people there and the volunteers even, let alone the people who are missing out. Uh, So, but you know, I'm very privileged you know, with the life I've led and where I, where I am. And, you know, I've got a house, I've got a roof over my head for starters. I've got food to eat tonight and we don't need to worry about where it's coming from next week or the week after. So I always acknowledge that. Uh, that's why I get out and, and try and help others because so many people right now have, have fallen through the cracks and, and, you know, they've been struggling for a long time. They haven't had a voice, um, you know, in Australia, the, you know, the casual workforce, um, you know, asylum seekers and refugees, uh, newly arrived migrants, many, many parts of the community who have been forgotten, have been invisible, who people weren't concerned about, and all of a sudden are looking around and saying, "Well, hang on a minute, you know, these people aren't able to lock down; they're not allowed to stay home because they, you know, they can't exist two days; they don't have enough savings." You know, how did this happen? Well, it's important that we all understand it was happening. Uh, and, you know, and it, it's now become visible. And so I just hope that after COVID, we're going to be able to reshape some parts of Australian society and perhaps globally so that, you know, less people are in this situation.
0: Definitely, definitely. I wanted to touch on, um, for example, like what or when it was that you actually decided to like fall into the whole activist uh, like stuff.
1: Well... I was always working in social programs. So from a very young age as a player, um, I was working um, in Indigenous rights organisations. I I was coaching young Indigenous kids and Indigenous teams and things. I felt strongly about it. By the time I was in the mid-20s, when I became a Socceroo, actually, I was uh, politically active. That is, I was speaking during the referendum on the republic i believe that australia should stand on our own two feet i think it's an important part of growing up as a nation and so i was speaking at that time with a couple of other athletes Uh, rochelle hawkes was the captain of the hockey ruse uh and uh you know with malcolm turnbull at the town hall here in sydney and other things so i was always uh, socially and or politically active it's just that um I then went from being an ambassador, sitting on directorships of various charities and uh, social justice organizations, to then just being much more uh, vocal. Uh, you know, as my public profile grew, uh, I was able to use that to the benefit of those groups, those individuals, and um, those organizations, that's all.:
0: It's awesome, because quite often we see like um, like celebrities always using the platform to kind of like, you know, I'm just saving my, I'm just saving my image by just getting like, I'll just attach my name to a thing. But we kind of see you hands on with um, like companies such as Amnesty International and stuff. Can you just talk to us a little bit about the work that you do with them?
1: So I'm uh, basically an ambassador with Amnesty. I sit on the Australia Committee for Human Rights Watch, which means I have a more, uh, active ad, advisorial role whereas with amnesty i uh, helped build a campaign for refugees and asylum seekers with them called game over uh, i raised some money for them you know from the community and high net worth individuals in australia to get that campaign up and running uh, you know that's to resettle uh, all the asylum seekers and refugees from offshore still in nauru and png and and that's very quickly become also those onshore here to to get them out of the APODs, the hotels and and the the torturous environment that they've been in for eight years. So my relationship with Amnesty, it it started with the refugee community sponsorship scheme. And the idea of that is that communities and LGAs, councils and, and community groups, civil society around the country can raise some funds to sponsor a refugee to come to the country And it's a very good scheme, very successful in Canada, in part because when community groups mobilise to support a refugee coming to any country, by nature, then they wrap around their support around that person. So it means that people aren't just arriving, uh, you know, by themselves without support networks. uh, And so it's been very successful in other countries. It does exist here in Australia, but it's prohibitively expensive, which simply means that the government doesn't want it to work. Uh, you know, it costs something like $75,000 up front just to be able to sponsor someone and then, and these types of things. So uh, I started there some years ago, um, supporting that in order to change policy. And then I I've just continued on since then. I, I do agree with you. I think it's not just um, high profile people, but I think society has got to a point where the business community, um, a large part of the academic community uh uh, much of civil society but particularly our workers, employees, directors, management of the Australian business and sports community and sport I'm talking here about professional sport largely which is a business and therefore it's conditioned by its sponsors it's conditioned by its corporate relationships not by human rights or or the athletes. Uh, you know I think as a society we've got ourselves into a place where too many people are reluctant to speak out and so to the extent that more people do so, I think it's extremely important. Take for instance, this morning, the day I'm talking to you on Grace Tame, the current Australian of the year has written a very powerful piece, uh, I think in the Sydney Morning Herald about um, the uh, decision by Scott Morrison, the prime minister uh, to appoint one of his cabinet to a higher office. And, uh, you know, a, a minister who, has, uh, you know, historic sexual assault allegations. Um, They're they're still really on foot in the public domain. And by coming, and Grace Tame has come out in a very powerful, strong, authentic and principled way. And and I think it's beautiful, wonderful, because, you know, Australian of the Year is a really good example of what we would call, you know, being co-opted, that means the way that most people operate in the business community is if you're too outspoken, or the sports community, if you're too outspoken on these types of issues, you can be marginalized, you can be ostracized, and all of a sudden their corporate com- their corporate career is compromised. Uh, and you know, the same thing happened to me. You know, by speaking out for refugees and asylum seekers, there is a, a cost. Um uh, and, but the point, you know, more of us have to ask the question as to whether that cost, you know, um, uh, how we quantify that cost? Actually, there's a benefit. There's a net benefit. Um, there might be a commercial cost, but the, the benefit's far outweigh that. Uh, and so Australia, in particular, uh, I think much of the West, US, and others have got themselves in a position where people don't really want to speak out about anything. Well, and that's why we are where we are. You know, we've got a planet that's on fire. Uh, you know, we've got uh, you know political class with, with no accountability. You know, with very significant and and constant rotting. Uh, you know, taxpayer dollars. You know, we've got uh, the cost of university degrees going up. uh, And, you know, we've got so many issues that should be really straightforward to solve, but not enough people are talking about them for that reason. So I was talking about the, the unit cost of speaking out at the moment is still quite high. And there are many more people much more brave than me, I must say, but the unit cost, that means the cost to me or to you is still reasonably high. The more people who are politically, socially engaged and willing to speak up, the less the unit cost, because then you're talking about collectivism. You know, so if everyone's talking about what we need to do in renewables, then your voice, there's no cost to you adding your voice to that. And that's how social progress happens.
0: I think we saw that in like the Colin Kaepernick saga. So, like um, a lot of the NFL footballers were like, they didn't want to touch the situation with a 10 foot pole because, yeah. first of all, they didn't have guaranteed contracts. And then, on top of that, also, like they're trying to take care of their families and stuff. And then you can hear all of the managers and the owners saying, like, there is no chance that you guys can stay on this team kneeling and doing whatever you want to do. Like, we're not, like, we're running a business here, you know? And you're going you're gonna to put <laughs> that at risk. And also, you can see it from the, the, the recent Euros. When you hear the booing in the background from kneeling footballers and stuff like that, so and you can see that like collectively, when you when you get like a group of people to to kind of move in one direction, it's a lot more powerful than just individuals, you know. And um, sure. that's
1: why the that's why the early movers are so courageous. Okay, because let's say for instance you're talking about you know anti-racism now and Black Lives Matter and things. So in you know you've got an England a shirt on there. So let's talk about um. Sterling, yeah. Raheem Sterling. So some years ago, you know, three, four, maybe years, maybe more, uh, he's been very active on that. And so the early movers, uh, they, you know, they're going to uh, acquire much more of a blowback because society at that time is not ready to move. And, and the areas of society who actively don't want to move, so the racists, for example, you know, or... Uh, political communities or or, um, uh, parts of civil society, which are anti-immigration or, you know, uh, whatever the case is, um, they're going to push back hard then because they still have some social resonance. They feel as though they still have some control of the situation. So when you're going into these types of new issues, those people need real courage. I think they're incredible. Uh, And then what happens is, uh, and often they, they, you know, those people lose their career often that sometimes they lose their reputation and it's only, you know, 30, 40 years later when people are acknowledged. I mean, the first protests in sport, if we're talking about sport, uh, some of the first, uh, one of the most high profile was in 68 was the Black Power Salute course of uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith and, and Pete Norman, the Australian stood in solidarity with them. Of course, they lost their career. Both of them end up trying to play NFL in actual fact, right? Whereas today sport has come full circle and Colin Kaepernick is now saying, well, I'm doing the same thing. Uh, And you've got WNBA players who've been amazing, you know, the beauty is that athletes are now claiming their own power. And and the point I'm trying to make is that I think more people are trying to, I hope they're doing it uh, across society, doing the same thing. In other words, saying, look, I'm an employee of this company, but I'm, a human being first. So Simone Biles, the legendary, you know, the world's greatest female gymnast ever goes there. And she says, look, I'm my mental health is not in a great place. You know, it's a sexual assault survivor for starters. Right. Plus I'm sure, I don't know. I, it's not my lived experience, but I, you know, people are saying that, you know, she's carrying a, a great burden also in terms of black lives matter and all of these things. Um, and, so she goes there and she can't do it. And what she's saying is very important. She's saying, I might work for Woolies, or I might be a legendary gymnast, or I might be Colin Kaepernick, or I might be a lawyer, or I might be a, a food hamper packer at Addison Road Community Centre in Marrickville, like me. But I'm a person first. And therefore, I'm not walking across there. Just because you're paying me doesn't mean I have to walk over that thing and then. Be treated in a racist manner, um, you know, not be able to recognise my religious rights and freedoms and 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 uh, holidays. Um, that I'm going to turn a blind eye to the fact that you know you're making all the footballs, you know, with uh, you know eight year old kids in a in a you know um, in a country with uh, lower socioeconomic economic um, value for people, right? Um, you know, I'm not going to overlook those things and I'm not going to overlook the fact that, you know, we're spewing out toxic CO2 uh, and burning the planet. Right. Whereas in the past, not too long ago, people were going, well, do you know what? Um, you know, I work there and that's my job and I can compartmentalize that to my life. And what I'm hoping that COVID done is that it's it's just destroyed that barrier where people go, no, it's my life. Okay, and, and actually we all recognize that you might lose it, yeah. right? So people are questioning and saying, well, what does my life stand for? Like, who the hell am I? Because when I go to work, I'm a lawyer and I'm writing contracts to enable fossil fuel companies to destroy environmental law. Like, is that okay with me or not, right? So there's a, you know, or I'm a public servant and I'm going to work and I'm, and I'm implementing policy that's torturing refugees and people are actually dying you know, am I any longer willing to just say, well, I'm just bringing it to life. I'm just doing what I'm told. Am I, am I actually, you know, so this, I think much of that has changed and I hope it changes a hell of a lot more because I think we need a lot of social change and progress.
0: 100%. And um, <clears throat> you can obviously see that like people are starting to realize that you can't just really handle those responsibilities off to the next man or the next woman in line. And then um, you can, but then you also see vice versa, like on the other side where the person is like, just kind of like giving it lip service and they're just like, okay, I don't want to be the odd one out in this situation as well. So they'll follow blindly. You know what I mean?
1: That's true. That's true. So there's a lot to be said for, you know, people have a right to express, you know, their view. And and the contrary view is important because um, it makes, you know, everyone consider, uh, you know and test their theories right so you know this is this is why a democracy is very important you know you saw the belarusian uh i'm not sure if she was a gymnast but um basically you know said something about her coach or or the environment in Bella, in belarus and uh they they basically said this at the recent olympics and they said oh get yourself home you're in trouble and now she's seeking asylum and you know some countries are taking it um, sadly for her, she's probably better not better off not coming to Australia because she'll end up eight years in, you know, Manus Island and then in a hotel, right? That's the reality of the situation. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's a different issue. But, um, you know, you need contrary views. The problem that we have in the world at the moment and where also sport has to play a role is that disinformation, and misinformation is a global industry that the world has never had to face at this level. And therefore um you know perfectly well-meaning people are digesting a diet of just lies and rubbish um, in a way that has never happened in human history and the delivery mechanisms today which is largely social media are, are, are delivering more information to us at a more sophisticated level than ever in history and much of that uh is nefarious inaccurate Dangerous and extremely damaging. So if we go back, and then people tend to not work that out until later. But the problem is we're facing, you know, very significant existential issues, even like the planet and pandemics. And so, like it's urgent, you know, you, you, you know, people going down the wrong paths at this time is damage extremely damaging to everyone. Um, whereas it used to be that people were just on the fringe, which with with some crazy conspiracy theories, you know, but they couldn't sell those in a sophisticated manner to the rest of the place. They had to actually prove there and, you know, find a voice and bring people along. So the, you know, what worries me is, you know, the tobacco industry did this very well, and it's been copied then by the fossil fuel industry as well. So if you remember back in the, as early as the fifties, there was um, research saying that, you know, tobacco, uh, and cigarettes, cigarettes in particular, um, caused cancer. Yep. And the tobacco industry, Benson Hedges and others, uh, you know, they buried that information effectively. And what they did, though, more damagingly, is they ran a very sophisticated, skilled, and successful disinformation campaign. So they literally killed, I don't know how many, let's say tens of thousands of people or contributed to their deaths. Later, of course, they had to pay billions and billions and billions in compensation. We're back there again, because that's what's happened on climate research, which as early as 50s, 60s, 70s, and certainly by 80s, uh, Shell, Exxon, Mobil, and other companies we know had research that very accurately predicted uh, the heating of the planet due to man-made activities, in particular, CO2. They, and, and so they knew very well but what they have done is run a very coordinated very sophisticated and very successful disinformation campaign to question science and so it's got us to a point sadly in a, in a pandemic you know came at a time when people questioned science and medical uh, advice and fraternity and 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 expertise and experience to a greater degree perhaps you know than ever in history so anyway the point is, We all need to, um, you know, we all need to speak up about these issues when it comes to democracy or human rights in particular, which is the field where I spend a lot of my time.
0: Definitely, definitely. And um, we can see that a lot of people cling on to truths, whether or not they are the truth um, is yet to be seen. Like, for example, with the pandemic and like you were saying, the conspiracy theorists, they kind of like, they grip onto anything that will help them, like, you know, like like um, find something to to hang on to, and um, they have a saying like, "It stand for something or fall for nothing." You know, so I wanted to see like um, what was it that really sparked the light for you? Was it like who who was the um, like who was a catalyst in your like, activist uh, career?
1: Yeah. So just on that, so many of the drivers of people, and I'm not an expert on, I'm not a professor on conspiracy theories or you know, but. Um, I think many of the drivers of it are right, they're positive, people want to question, people have, you know, a a lack of trust in political figures and leaders, as do I, I think we're at a horrible place in terms of leadership and accountability and so on in Australia, Um, and and, you know, the trust of pharmaceutical companies and, and the trust of corporations, uh, you know, who've been destroying the ocean and destroying the planet, I think that's all, you know, those drivers are great. The problem is when you then seek information as to what alternatives are or why this is occurring, there's just so much rubbish out there that is, um, and, and, you know, you don't know who's behind it. You don't know um, why they're why they're pushing these agendas, um, and it's just horrible. So, pe- it's actually we're in an environment at the moment where it's very difficult p- for people to know who or what to trust, and that's a really bad place to be because people can then clutch clutch on to uh, you know disinformation, misinformation. You saw, for instance, recently uh, Alan Jones uh, and uh, MP Craig Kelly recently. Uh, talking on Sky News, so called Sky After Dark, um, after 6 p.m., I think it is, and just talking utter rubbish, utter lies about uh, the Delta variant of COVID and the uh, effectiveness or otherwise of vaccines. It was just absolute disinformation. That is to say, it was wrong and it's dangerous. And so now, unfortunately, um, YouTube have taken, I think the whole uh, whole organization off for seven days, but, and they've taken those videos off. Um, and I say, unfortunately, uh, because if YouTube, with all of the rubbish that they spew all around the world and disinformation that they've allowed, um, in t- particularly in relation to climate and other things, which are issues that really deeply affect us all, um, if they uh, think that it's inappropriate what those people are saying, and yet the, reg- the, the broadcast regulator in Australia has done nothing, that tells us a lot. Uh, that you know Australia's got ourselves in a place where you're pretty much able to say virtually anything without any real consequences on air, and those, those consequences to yourself, but those consequences are extremely Uh-oh. damaging. You know at a time when uh you know people need to follow public health guidelines and and of course we should all be questioning those guidelines because governments have a history by nature of going too far you know and wanting too much control and wanting too much power this is the, this is the nature of every government um of course we should be should be questioning the public health guidelines and the information and so on but that's very different Um, because ultimately we're still all together saying, we know that we have responsibility to public health. Uh, We just want you guys to prove, you know, uh, why these things are necessary and where the balance lies and so on. That's very different to saying, oh, this thing doesn't exist, or this thing is overblown, or this thing, vaccines don't work, or we should be injecting ourselves with bleach, like, you know, idiot Trump, or, you know, it's like this crazy stuff, right? and it's it's very very damaging, very damaging. So my my uh, dogs are going <laughs> a bit crazy here. So anyway, that's lockdown.
0: <laughs> no one could get out, huh? <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah um, I I was just touch on Alan Jones a little bit because um, I'm from a Lebanese Muslim background and um, yeah. obviously lived through the Carnal riots and all that sort of stuff. So I was kind of like. I wouldn't say victim too, but more so, like, I was there for the whole, you know, I was there for the whole, like, and he kind of, like, was the catalyst for it, so he knows that he's got, like, some sort of influence on, you know, like, what we call, like, the far right of Australia, and um, for him to say damaging stuff like that, just to, like, spark further stuff is very irresponsible.
1: Yeah, I agree, and, uh, you know, these, these dangerous misogynistic comments and things, you know, they're they're not being taken with enough seriousness. And we've seen what's happened, um, you know, extremism on all forms, including what happened in Christchurch and so on. And then people don't want to take any responsibility for the fact that they've been, you know, spewing this hateful stuff out for over a period of years and then inciting or supporting violence, you know, which occurred down in Cronulla. It's very, very serious. Um, And, uh, you know, so there's two, there's two aspects to that. One is, you know, are these people are doing this because it's who they are, in which case they shouldn't be on air anyway, or are they doing it because this is the audience to which, you know, they are talking and the audience that's responding to them and therefore they're doing it for purely commercial reasons. And either or it's disgusting. So I watched a documentary not too long ago, you know, I've, I've taken some interest in these conspiracy theory formulas because the world is in a bad place there. And I think we all need to understand to some degree, how this has come about, who's driving it and how we can fight back. Um, and um, and I watched a, a, a documentary happened to be on a far right, um, just absolute idiot, um, who by the name of Alex Jones and this person was, so Sandy Hook massacre happened in a school and this is a really great example. For anyone who's confused about this, just go and watch uh, you know, uh, work on this person. And Sandy Hook occurred and uh, you know, a number of kids were massacred in a school in America. And he had his own you know, uh, far right, uh, idiotic, uh, chaotic uh, environment where he immediately started saying, well, this is fake. It's been, this is a deep state uh, conspiracy, Uh, you know, whatever he said, Um, you know, CIA are involved and blah, blah, blah. And all of these people here are actors. Yeah, I think this was on the day. If not, it was very close afterwards, right? These people, and he's talking about parents here of dead children, right? And so these people are actors and I've got information that this is just a whole conspiracy and this is not real. And they're trying to trick you and, and blah, 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 blah. blah. Now that person was making literally millions of dollars, um, in, uh, millions of dollars in, you know, propagating these uh, these theories, these, this misinformation, disinformation, these lies and, um, and, um, And so therefore, uh, you know, that's, that's shocking. That's shocking. Uh, That shouldn't be allowed. Uh, And YouTube and other channels who are doing these things have to be really called to account. We see this with racism, huge amount of racism that's being propagated on these social media channels and abuse, particularly of women. Uh, We see that a lot in sport and these things have to be brought to a head. These things have to be challenged now because I think, I hope the pandemic certainly the climate should already have taught us that you know, this is uh, anti-human rights. This is anti-social. This is anti-community. This is anti-progress. Uh, uh, this is anti-human future. You know, this stuff is dangerous.
0: So it's like, it's like we've we've moved into a into a state where the world is just basically like working off instant gratification in all aspects. You know. So like we, it's all about making or lining my pockets now, you know, what can I get now while this, like, for example, um, I know that a lot of people are on this cryptocurrency wave, you know, and like, for example, GameStop was like a, a, a bit of a, a, had a bit of a situation where everyone used it as like a, a kind of like a stick it to the man thing. But GameStop is like, there's livelihoods attached to it, you know, there's people that are on the other end that are like, like they're waiting on you know, like their futures on what's going to happen and then somebody just gets like, you know, they just they just toy with power, you know, and they just kind of like take and give and they don't really care about the whole, like everyone's just like an ant to them, you know? So yeah, like, yeah. I agree with you on what you're saying of stuff like that. I think
1: the multi, you know, the good thing at the moment is there's a lot of alternate thinking. People are questioning and that's good. Um, the problem is we're getting disinformation, getting lies as we question, but the questioning is important. Like, you know, how did we get the planet into this environment? How did we get the sea full of plastic? How did we get extinction of so many animals? How how are we still, you know, deforesting and burning the Amazon? Uh, How do we get in a position where so many right-wing authoritarian idiots are able to get themselves elected? Like, how did that happen? Um, You know, how do we get ourselves to a position where so many people have uh, unstable work Uh, and you know no human dignity how is homelessness rising Uh, you know how is it that we have a royal commission 30 years ago into indigenous deaths in custody and virtually nothing or not enough has been implemented in 30 years and how do we get ourselves to a place where people just don't care about others and the pandemic is a great example I mean the pandemic hit at a time when society is more individualistic perhaps than it's ever been I don't know I'm not a historian but uh you know and so therefore all of a sudden you're asking people to make sacrifices for others and it's a very interesting time it's a it's obviously an awful pandemic and and um you know it's going to have a number of variations and there's no doubt that it's going to change the world in many ways one way it should change one way it should change the world is us all you know looking around and saying well hang on a minute we all agree to be together in society that's what a society is you know, if you want to live by yourself and not have access to the roads and hospitals, and I mean, they all cost in Australia too much at the moment, but, uh, and the universities and the, tele- and, and the telecommunications uh, infrastructure and Medicare, that all of us pay through our taxes, then you have actually a responsibility. Uh, you, you, you are not a society of one. And this is what some of the issue with, you know, the conservative thinking of politics, you know, Margaret Thatcher said, um, before her age of horrible austerity when you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, were put out of work uh, and poverty spiked in the UK. She said, oh, there's no such thing as society. You know, we're all, the only thing that really matters is individual freedom and rights. And, and I say, well, if that's the case, go and live on an island somewhere by yourself because you are participating in our society. You are benefiting from our society. Uh, and we're all contributing to that, um, and part of that is corporations paying their tax, and you know, you know, and so, um, you know, so transnational uh, tax schemes and all these things are increasingly being looked at, which I think is great. By the OECD, recently they signed off on what uh, what they propose. Whether they ever put it into place is another matter But You know, I think people around the world should be talking about transnational tax uh, schemes and the fact that you know these multinationals go around the world are housed in Panama or elsewhere and pay no tax in the country of source where the revenue comes from. And so all of these issues are very significant. Um, and I think what we saw with Trump is that these issues have made people feel uh, marginalized, have made them feel powerless, have made them feel as though no one cares about them, have made them feel as though big business and you know and polit- politicians or whoever, um, are fleecing them and that powerlessness has been manipulated by people like Trump and Bolsonaro and others uh, to get themselves into power Uh, and what's become clear is that they're actually even worse you know whilst they tell you that they're going to fix it they actually are there to profit from it so that that whole that whole movement and where we've got ourselves to is a very powerful state to consider change. The problem is there's some really sophisticated organizations and people around the world in leveraging that for their own um, you know nefarious purposes. So it's a really interesting time in history, but it's also an extremely challenging one.
0: Definitely. all this stuff's extraordinary to me because it's like I'm, well, I've been built off like a blue collar family, so like my family's always been like you know run your own small business you know, stay in your corner, make sure that your community is good, make sure that the people around you, you know, close cousins and all that sort of stuff, everyone's doing well. And then, like, you don't really think of things as a whole. You kind of think of things in your own bubble and you want to make sure that everyone's okay. But then, like, there's also, like, the butterfly effect. So there's, like, like a butterfly, like, flapping its wings here I can cause a tsunami on the other side of the world. So it's, like, and for us in our religion, so, because um, Islam teaches us, like, the way to change the environment around you is to first change what's internal, you know? And yeah, so it's like a lot of the times it's, I think we can get to a place where we want to be by introspection and like for everyone to like just look into what's going on inside themselves and how can I improve or how can I do my bit? You know, whether it's like, like you were saying for the environment, like you see rubbish on the floor, we just look past, you know? Like what's that one piece of rubbish gonna do? There's like, billions of people on Earth, man. If everyone, if everyone picked up one piece of trash every day, like we cleaned the Earth in like a year or so, you know. So, like definitely, yeah. But um, I wanted to sorry
1: injustice, injustice is a big word, right? I you know so I think that's right. So the first point is you know don't obviously don't lecture others on doing things that you're not doing yourself. Um, and, you know, and I think society is calling that out more than ever, particularly with businesses. Okay. Well, you guys are talking about, you know, you've got a wrap Rio Tinto. You've got a reconciliation action plan, you know, and you're probably on elevate, which is, you know, the top level, you, you know, so you, you're holding this up as, you know, we're, we're really pro indigenous rights at the same time that you're destroying caves, you know, with uh, ancient, uh, historic cultural sites, like that's not going to work anymore. And it's good, it's good that um, society has uh, increasingly uh, called that out. That's really important. But also, um, you know, we need to, people need to work together to uh, create a fairer, more even society. And that's about injustice, in my view. You know, it doesn't matter what religion it is. I think at the heart of it is about... Um, you know, treating other people uh, in, in a fair manner and ensuring that people aren't mistreated in particular, right? So there's a... And this is kind of where Australia's at. You know, we've always talked about egalitarianism, equality and fairness, and they're very important principles. But actually what Australia really needs to do is to go from that to injustice. Mm. And so it's a bit like Harmony Day. So, you know, Harmony Day was... was you know, there's a, there's a day... Uh, called the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination uh, under the United Nations. Now, this day was uh, commemorated some decades ago because during apartheid, um, uh, black South Africans protested and a number of them were murdered, shot by police forces. And so this day symbolizes being against racial discrimination. In other words, it's an anti-racism day. What uh, John Howard did in a conservative government is he said, "Well, we don't want to talk about anti-racism. I don't want to talk about racism. I want to pretend that it doesn't exist. Because if I need to talk about racism, I have to talk about colonization. I have to talk about the start of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of um, modern Australia. I have to talk about, uh, you know, uh, massacres and terra So I have to talk about how, you know, um, we uh, interjected this entire." fallacy of 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 law uh, you know over the top of indigenous sovereignty right so I, i'm not going to talk about racism i don't even want to acknowledge it so therefore i'm going to call it harmony day so harmony day and anti-racism is a really great example of the two narratives in australia in 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 many aspects okay and that is uh we have to move beyond harmony day to anti-racism we have to move beyond fairness and and egalitarian society, which of course is no longer as true as what it once might've been. Um, wealth and uh, income inequality is at an all time high, you know, both here um, in US and elsewhere. Um, but we have to, uh, nevertheless, we have to move from thinking or talking about fairness and egalitarianism to injustice. That's no good just saying that we want a fair, no. That's unjust. We have to help Indigenous Australia get back to where we are now. And that, takes, that actually takes progressive uh, measures. And under international human rights law, um, this is contemplated. What they say is you know, equality, there's equality and then there's equity. So equality means that we all have the same opportunities. That's wonderful, but we're not start, starting from the same starting position. Some people got a handicap like the stall gift. You know, this is not like the Olympic 100 metre final where they're all on a straight line. This is a stall gift. So First Nations are like way back there somewhere, you know, and you look back and you can't even see them in the race. They've got no chance of getting up there and winning the prize. Many, you know, the, many of them, right? I'm just saying as a, as a concept. So therefore, that, you know, stepping across that divide and actually going from that to injustice, that means you have to fight for things now. Not good enough just to say look i support all of these things it doesn't matter you actually have to do something for them this is where black lives matter has been really powerful because it's anti racism and therefore what they're saying is one of the best statements to come out of that was silence is violence and i think that's right it's taught people a lot you know i'm a white in in almost every way privileged australian when I, you know, I played for Australia, I thought I did a marvelous thing in getting there, but I never realized when I was young that no one ever looked at me and said, well, I don't like your religion. I don't like the look of you. I don't like your color, um, you know, and I don't trust you. No one ever said that with me, right? I'm, I'm an Anglo-Australian. By Anglo, I mean, my family comes from England. So, uh, you know, in some of the early boats. So therefore, you know, you know I speak English. They didn't say, oh, well, I can't understand you. And you've got a funny name and I'm gonna, I'm gonna anglicize your name and have a laugh about it and blah, 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 right? That never happened to me. So therefore, who has a real responsibility to challenge these things? Is it the people who are suffering racism who usually are minorities? Or is it people who have profited from racism and are in positions of authority, profile or influence? Yeah. That's the question that the world has had to wrestle with in, in, in contemporary times, I think almost entirely because of um, black lives matter because what they brilliantly did was said you have to talk up with us you know and let's take Kaepernick for example right? I'm not sure Kaepernick said anything but some of the African-American black athletes said well you our white teammates it's no good just standing and saying nothing anymore like you guys are either with us or against us because people are dying here and, and that I hope there's going to be more of that in society going forward. There's no silence is violence. Sorry. It's no good. Just it's no good. Just having a nice house, good cars, do all this. I'm a great management. I'm a great CEO of a company. I've done wonderful things. I, I do a bit of charity, this and that, but I've never said anything for indigenous Australians, the vast majority of whom never going to have the opportunity to be where I am now. And I don't want to say anything about that. I, I don't think that's right.
0: Yeah, you're right. And this is the idea of forgotten people like you're talking about. The people that are just like they're just invisible to everyone else. It's like, yeah. as long as I'm good, you know, everything else is okay. But um, yeah, nah, extraordinary stuff. I wanted to like I wanted to switch gears and kind of talk about a lighter topic, maybe your football career a little bit. And but I wanna go from like a chronological order because we don't really we don't really hear too much about, first of all, how you got to where you are. And then on top of that, like, we don't hear too much about your stint in England and stuff like that. So what got a young Craig Foster into football?
1: Well, the reason I don't talk about a huge amount is because, you know, there's a lot of other stuff to do, but also I think much, most of the power and the reason for sport is to provide opportunities for people to then go do other good stuff, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and ultimately it's just kicking a ball around and we all love it. And I love to talk about it, you know, and I love the best teams in the world and, uh, and you know, I'll always play some role when it comes to broadcasting the game and things because it's just too too great. Um, but we always have to put it in perspective. The other reason is that there's many great players, and I wasn't one. Um, so you know, I was I was pleased to be able to you know play for the Socceroos. Um, you know, I had a whole heap of injuries in my career that I just had to keep battling and battling and battling. Like my career was as much about just keep going, don't give up. And that, you know, that's some of the the good things about sport. You know, the human stories in sport are the most important. It's not being able to kick a ball and curl it over a wall. Uh, It's the fact that, you know, people, people have to be there and they have to overcome losses and they have to overcome heartache and they have to keep going and, that, you know, they're the beautiful stories that we love. So it was mostly about that. So, you know, when I talk about football, you know, I prefer to talk about the great players, you know, people who played 200 times for their country or, you know, uh, you know, Timmy Kales. And the, the thing for me is I played with some of our greatest players ever. And uh, so I know how great they were. And so therefore, um, you know, I worked hard to be there, um, but I recognise that, you know, they, like I have 29 caps. There's people with, you know, well in excess of 100 caps, so, you know, I, th- I hope that sport teaches us some humility and therefore, you know, what's the point of spending hours talking about your own career? It's just, it's a part of your life that you're very proud of. Um, but there's other, you know, there's other people doing even better. That's the beauty of football. Like no one's Maradona. There's only one Maradona.
0: I get you, 100%. So um, the, the reason why, um, like, when I hear stuff like that from from you, for example, it's like there's there's an element of realism to here, which is like it's quite admiring for people like us, because every day you kind of wake up with this like imposter syndrome sometimes, and like and people around you, you start to notice that like you don't they don't really know what you're going through. So you like you're talking about Simone Biles, for example, she was one of the greatest Olympians ever, you know, like especially for her country and at such such a young age, and then they kind of like isolate the human experience away from the actual athlete themselves you know but um yeah i wanted to like like just touch on the perseverance aspect of things for you like what was it that like is it the love of football or was it the um this idea that you had to like prove to yourself that you could do it you know what i mean like what was it that drove you mostly
1: well, it wasn't the love because, you know, I still play today. and you know, I'm 52. I play in the over 35s up here. Like, you know, you're always going to play, right? So, you know, the love is just a given. Um, and uh, so it didn't matter if I was a professional or played for Australia or otherwise, I would have just been playing in the park. So, um, no, it's more about, um, you know, I, I think everyone probably has times in their life where you know, difficulties are part of the human condition, part of the human experience. Uh, you know, we all face essentially the same things at different times throughout our life. Um, we just respond to it in different ways. Uh, and, you know, we all have a, a range of challenges, whether it's, you know, doesn't, whether it's personal, uh, whether it's um, relational, family, uh, or whether it's, you know, in terms of your career, whatever that means uh, to you. Uh, We all have things that we want to achieve. Sport is kind of easy in a way because the achievement path is very straightforward. Whereas people in other fields, I guess if you're an academic, you might, you know, clearly see that you want to be a professor. Um, You know, in business, I guess, um, you know, people can uh, create their own idea of success in sport, it's really simple. You're going to go there, be a professional. You're either going to play for Australia or you aren't, and and you can you know you you can go and play for the top teams in the world if that you know if you're able to get there. So it's about having um, you know I think we all have a vision of what we'd like to achieve. Mine these days changes a lot, much more than what it did. The thing about sport is you you do tend to be very focused and sport does exist in a bubble, you know, and you've seen that during the Olympic games. One of the, I say disappointing, but it's not unexpected. And I'm not criticizing the athletes. I am criticizing the sports because people who run the sports tend to be a much more mature and older uh, and B should have a much better understanding of uh, of uh, the world. And very few sports, let alone athletes in, in Tokyo during the Olympics have made any comments about the Japanese situation with COVID and uh, you know, what's occurring there and the imposition of the Olympics on Japan. Very few at all. Like I've, I've virtually seen, I saw Kate Campbell, a swimmer, made some good comments. Um, that were, I don't think they were carried back here in Australia. Someone sent me the transcript of her uh, press conference is the only way I, I haven't seen anything, but the sports should be talking about it. Um, And so, um, you know, so the athletes tend to be very clear on what it is that they need to achieve. And, you know, the top level of world sport is so highly competitive that it takes immense focus. That's why I think there's a lot of room, a lot of scope for training on human rights and for sports and people around athletes to help them be more worldly, to understand Um, you know, what's going on politically. And, you know, I think, you know, you you probably need some support there. Um, So anyway, um, you understand what it is that you need to achieve. And the only decision is are you going to keep going to try and get there? And the, the more that injury afflicts an athlete, the more doubts can surface, you know, as other people go on to achieve things, you know, you're still battling away and all of a sudden, you know, you break another bone or you do another knee and, but it's those aspects of sport that we love and come to really respect you know when you see in the uh, olympics you know an athlete had, had gone through a huge amount of uh, injury problems and personal issues and had to keep going and going and then win something or even competes at that level you know it's it's uh, it's very uh, uh, i think um, emotionally charged and heartening to see because you see a reflection of what everyone else is going through whether they're battling mental health or they're battling you know family and other issues so i just kept going you know i wanted to get there and i just didn't stop i wouldn't stop i kept going i didn't play for australia till 26 which is you know really uh quite old
0: yeah um i know i know you like to palm off the um do you like the um how do i like to say it like how good it was but like there is there is still this question, like you did make it to the highest level. You kind of went and played for Crystal Palace, you know, for three years or whatever it was. What was it like getting the call up, you know, like, hey, come down, we need it, we want to see you play for us in England, you know? You made to go there? Oh, just, just in general, the whole experience, like the call and then you going there and settling in and all that.
1: Um, look, it was, it, it, it's, it's amazing, you know, I... I basically call it the Hollywood of sport. You know, it's a very unreal environment. Uh, it's a very closeted environment. You know, it's, a, it's a, an environment with a lot of financial riches, whether that's the owners of the clubs or the players themselves or people who want to surround themselves, you know, um, in the sports or football environment. Um, you know, there's a lot of wealth and ostentatiousness everywhere. And it's very easy to get caught up in that. Um, and, um, sorry, my dog's going absolutely nuts here. Um, so, um, because my wife's just come home. Um, so, you know, it's, it's in, in some respects, uh, you know, it's in in incredibly enjoyable to be able to compete at that level. Um, the intensity of the environment is what's most enjoyable. So, uh, you know, it's public. It's, you know, you've got a huge amount of fans and people following every day, intensely excited, interested uh, in it. And, you know, every week you go out and perform in, in front of a whole bunch of people. You know, it's, um, it, it's a bit, in some ways it must be a bit like what the Colosseum was, uh, you know, in Rome, except you're not dying, you know, you're not being eaten by uh, lions or <laughs> speared, right? But it's, incre- it's an incredible environment. The thing about it was, though, I was always a bit detached from it, even when I was playing in the Socceroos and all of those things. I always was studying other things. I was always reading about things outside of sport. I was never just caught in sport ever. Uh, and I always found that part of it a little bit difficult. I found that the, probably the majority, but um, of most of the players that I was playing with were just incredibly focused on football. That had been their whole life, and that was really all they were interested in. Uh, and, and I never, you know, and I, um, so I was never, I was always, if you like a little bit different in that respect. And so I, you know, I, I, quite a lot, I found it difficult to really join in, you know, the, the, the jokes and the, the way things were being run. I just wasn't really that interested in it. So I kind of just had my own life all the time and other things, as well as being in football, whereas that's not always the case.
0: So the, I can kind of see where the commentary carries them from, you know, like because you're kind of like you're, you're in love with the sport and all that sort of stuff, but not too, not too in love with the the thing that surrounds it, you know, like the you're more so. Yeah, sorry. Carry on.
1: <laughs> what happened is I came back here and and I wasn't embedded in it, and I w- and I had a con- I had an idea, um, a different idea. I'm not saying it's a better idea, but I had a very different idea to most players or former players as to where the game sat in Australia, where I thought it needed to head, what it meant culturally to the country, what multiculturalism was about, why the game was important to grow here. And all of those things I was very focused on. Uh, and that is largely because, yeah, I, I had been, you know, thinking those, thinking through those things for a very long time, not just about how to be a number six a number eight or a number 10.
0: Definitely. Um, I wanted to, because obviously, I've seen um, videos of your commentary at the World Cup in 06, you know, and yeah. I think I think everybody in Australia at the time was just losing their minds at how well the Aussies played, and some may go as far as to say it was the golden generation for Australian football. You know, um, what was it that like, like you know what I mean? Like you would expect because MLS right now is is like booming, and you see that American football kind of like moving in a direction where it's built it's built itself like a nice foundation from, for example, Landon Donovan and Dempsey playing. And we had like Kuhl and Schwarzer and Vuduka here and also Timmy Cahill, you know. So we had some amazing footballers at the time. Why is it that you think we're not in the position we should be in as a country, as a footballing nation, you know?
1: Well, there's a lot of reasons, but the main one is that the game has always had to survive. Um, and it's always had to fight against, uh, in part, a national culture that was, you know, struggled with immigration. The game has always uh, struggled to uh, reconcile with the broader national culture. And for that reason, has always, I think, had a bit of a small mentality uh, and uh, not, not confident enough in its own culture and in its own history. And we've seen this in recent times when uh, the, you know, the game nationally decided not to be multicultural, it decided just to be you know, one brand of just Australian, um, and therefore the cultures couldn't be brought to life. Through the game at all so there's a shame in the game of football about what multiculturalism meant and of course that brought a whole heap of problems including you know different ethnic groups you know um fighting against each other but that that is the history of immigration in australia that's actually the history of migrant communities and that was brought to life through football so at a time when australia is most proud in a in a superficial way, but he's still very proud of the multicultural and diverse nature of the country. Football itself went the other way and said, well, we don't want to be multicultural. We just want to be Australian. We just want to be green and gold. We don't want to be all these flags underneath. Whereas Australia is saying, we want to be all the flags, not just green and gold, because we want First Nations to be held up. And we want to know about all of our African communities and our Asian communities. So, uh, football took the opposite you know, re- really out of um, uh, this deep desire to fit in and to be part of really truly Australian. Whereas it, all it needed to do was to actually realize that it is truly Australian. It's actually the most truly Australian because it is the, it is the most reflective of what Australia is. And Australia, a, a multicultural diverse country is messy in many ways. You know, it, there's, a, there's a huge amount of diversity that, and we all have to come together and get on. And we do that under shared rules of, you know, democracy, rule of law and other things um, and the secular nature of the country and all of these things. But the, the thing is, football decided not to talk about that. Um, and so uh, it's also been always very heavy factionalized, And so in the same way that the federal nature of the states and Commonwealth has been a huge factor in both pro and uh, cons of the management of the pandemic, with some states managing well and others less so. That's the same in football. So the states have always carried a great deal of power uh, and they've very largely acted uh, unilaterally and against the national agenda. And that's why we say that football in Australia has always been very political. Um, I, what what? What I think well, I was going to say. What disappoints me. It doesn't disappoint me. What What I think is one of the great challenges for the game. I put it that way. And I, and and challenge. Uh, there's a there's a tremendous bounty for Australian football if it can recognise its power through true multiculturalism,
0: yeah.
1: and be honest about that. Um, and that that means embracing the challenges you know, at the same time as um, talking about it, but also about the socially progressive sport. So, you know, football is the global sport. That means climate action to us is natural because the countries we play against in football, they're the ones who are going underwater or are getting drought or are having to flee, you know. So football is the global sport. It should give us a, a view of shared humanity. Like all of, you know, everyone in football in my view should be human rights advocates. Of course we are. We're the global game. What do you expect we're going to do? We want people to be treated well around the world. We're the game that should support refugees and asylum seekers. Of course we are. You know, the captain of the Olly Roos down at 23s is a South Sudanese refugee. Awa Mabil is a South Sudanese refugee. Okay. Of course they shouldn't be just refugees, but the concept of refugees been so demonized in Australia, that it's become a pejorative term. It's like a, you know it's a negative oh you're a refugee or how did you get here whereas they're just obviously just the people who are who need a need a home um so where should be fighting for them like the whole game of football should be saying get them off Manus" and so on like how can we not be doing that as a game like all the refugees they play football right i went to png you know 18 months ago or two years ago whatever it is and um And I played football with them. And the first thing they said to me is, Oh, you played for Australia? I said, Yeah. And they said, Oh, we watched the game in Iran, you know, the Iranians. They said, Oh, we watched the game in 97. We were little kids in school. I said, Oh, thanks for reminding me. But, and they said, (laughs) (laughs) And they said, Can we play a game of football? But of course, that's the connection that we understand in football. That's natural for us. You can't be xenophobic if you're in football. It's not possible. You shouldn't be bigoted, you know. prejudice is everywhere and it has to always be fought but you shouldn't be prejudiced and bigoted if you're a football fan a person in football how can you be how can you support rain sterling if you're a man city fan and then be racist like someone explained that to me right how can you support um you know i'll just use man city as an example uh, how can you support man city uh you know and you've got all the colors of the rainbow of humanity in one team and you're cheering them on going we're going to win the champions league And then you go out to the street and be a racist. Like it's not actually possible in my view. Okay, so therefore, these are the beautiful parts of the game that the game doesn't leverage, doesn't understand well enough, not in Australia anyway. Um, And and by that, I mean, football in Australia should be fighting for climate action. Of course we should, it's all the people we play, it's all our fellow football fans around the world who are being affected by it. It's all the countries where we play against, Um, you know, Africa, you know uh, South Asia, the Pacific, like we used to play in Oceania and so so what we don't care about them. Um, so all of these issues I think are reflected very well through football and um, and, and I don't think the game understands that well enough and I'm, I'm one thing I am committed to is to trying to help the game in Australia in particular come to terms with its responsibility to be global citizens and to speak up for humanity because that's ultimately what the game is supposed to be.
0: Definitely. Um, You just, yeah, like you touched upon your age. This isn't me bringing it up, but you've obviously lived through a fair bit of, and you've watched football since a young age. I wanted to ask like, uh, who is the greatest footballer you've ever seen or witnessed yourself? Um,
1: Well, I'll just say, uh, because I didn't see Maradona play. I've seen Messi play. Yeah. Uh, I went to New camp, of, uh, camp now a few times and I saw him play live and that was very special. Um, you know, to see him, you know, you just see the speed of action, you know, the, the, the ability, the unexpected, you know, the brilliance, you know, the ability to do things that, you know, you just can't conceptualise, you know. Just pull passes out of nowhere, execute them unbelievably, pull things down that you know you don't think is you know someone can do, and and then start a dribble where you just think you know how is it possible to go past all those people? When you see that live, when you see real genius live, it's very very special. It's it's beautiful on TV, but when you see it, it's something else. Um, the the best that we that I played against was when we played Brazil in 1997, and. Uh, that ninety-seven in Confed Cup, and of course we made we 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 drew against them 0 zero-zero, um, and then we made the final. Uh, we ended up with ten men. We we had um, someone sent off, and and then they just smashed us. Right? But the reason they smashed us is because uh, they were one of the finest teams the world has seen for a very long time. Um, in they're the team in ninety-eight that Zidane and his team beat in the final when Ronaldo didn't play. So that team, like they were coming out and for the younger football fans might not even know, but the older football fans will know the names They the team sheet that they were pulling out with some of the most historic Brazil players, which means some of the greats ever, right? You know, not the 70 team and, you know, or Jarzinho and Tostao and all these guys, but I'll tell you what, they're in that conversation. The front Well, El Phenomeno, Ronaldo, okay, it was just, so he's probably the best I've ever seen on a field, on the same field as me. Um, Rivaldo and Romario, so the three R's. Rivaldo, no, but Romario and Ronaldo, two of the greatest players in the history of the game, two of the greatest ever, like they'd have to be in the top 20, 25 Brazilian players in history. I mean, Ronaldo's in the discussion for top five players ever. Um, that's their forward line. Then they had um, the fullbacks were Cafu and Roboto Carlos.
0: Oh, Jesus. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then they had Janinho uh, 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 Paulista, you know, um, the one who come and play for Sydney FC and, and uh, you know, they had Dunga. I mean, he was around a long time as a captain. I mean, that was a staggering, staggering team, particularly the forward line. They played against 10 men, Australia in a final that they wanted to win and you know, it was just like you, you may may as well not even be there.
0: You feel shell shocked. You feel shell shocked when you see like you know Ronaldo Rizaj just sitting there on the other side of the pitch. Like, you're just like, wow, okay. <laughs> At that time, obviously he wasn't you really.
1: You can't know because players can't be fans in those moments. You know, you learn not to be. You know, um, otherwise you just couldn't play against them. You know, you you players kind of uh, learn to. Um, you know, be able to just confront any opponents, you know, without too much consideration of how brilliant they are. But later on, when you retire and you look back, and you think, oh my God, geez. Yeah. <laughs> those, those guys were just staggering. I mean, Ronald Romario is one of the greatest goal scorers. I mean, I used to watch him, you know, he was at PSV, but when he went to Barcelona, I remember watching him, you know, uh, with Stoichkov and all of these guys, and Kuman was there and Laudrup. Uh, you know, it's a staggering team, staggering team. And, you know, people, young kids who don't know Romario, he came and played with um, Adelaide United, of course, a few games, but he was, I think, around 40 then. Just have a look at his goal scoring. Like you're talking about a genius level. That's just, you know, it's amazing.
0: And the funny thing about this generation is they see Ronaldo Rosario as fat Ronaldo. You know, because you got Cristiano here and, like, the disrespect is just too real, you know? <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and that's because his fame also is, you know, at a different level to what the last generation was, you know? They've got, I don't know what he's got. He's got, like, 200 million or 150 million or something on Twitter and Instagram. And they see, like, it's a level of uh, fame that, you know, is, is historic uh, whereas people go back and watch El Phenomeno, uh, you know, when he was at Inter, for example, or Barca, if he didn't have that bad knee injury that he had, he would have been, I think, probably the greatest player in all time. Like he was just unbelievable.
0: Definitely. Um, I wanted to, cause I don't know, I did my own Google search before I uh, did this interview with you. And, um, I came across a fact that you were the Ballon d'Or voter when Kaka was voted as the Ballon d'Or winner in 2007, um, I wanted to ask whether or not you did vote for him, or was Cristiano Ronaldo on the sheet? Well, you're not allowed to disclose this information. I
1: can't remember, I can't remember, but yeah, I, I fulfilled that role for quite a few years. Um, that was for France Football pr- prior to FIFA taking it over. So, France Football magazine was probably the most respected football magazine in the world. The, you know, the very best writers and um, and analysis and you know it was a a bit of a a football bible for um you know fans and and uh they they actually had the ballon d'Or themselves and so you know it was nice to be asked fifa subsequently did a partnership with them and took it over and once that happens you know what happens with fifa
0: yeah it's all over
1: (laughs) marketing and and you know it's nowhere near as real anymore that they were all journalists actually former players and journalists um, that used to select the Ballon d'Or. Like they were experts, that was their profession. What of course then FIFA does is now the captains and everyone votes. It just becomes different. Not that it's not good, but it's very different. Um, So there was a a level of analysis, you know, you had to write your reasons on every player and, you know, it was a significant amount of work when France football had it anyway. um, I can't recall, but I'm pretty sure I would have voted for, in 07, I would have voted for Kaká. That team that won the Champions League uh, was unbelievable. And Kaká was at his peak then. He was an unbelievable player. I loved him. He just The way he just got it and just glided past players and, you know, his free kicks, his, his, his passing ability. Wow, what a player. In fact, I think it was that year I remember they played Manchester United at Old Trafford and they beat them. And oh, that, was, that was an unbelievable performance. They were so good.
0: And um, I wanted to end off on this last question. It might get you in a bit of flack, but I want to see uh, – I think, I think it's a question everyone has. Who's the greatest soccer of all time?
1: Oh, gee. Um, oh, man, that, again, is hard. You know, if you look at just the stats and the performance in big moments, you've got to say Timmy Kale, you know, because he, he delivered uh, in World Cups – at key moments, you know, uh, whether it's against Japan or otherwise, and in big, big qualification games, uh, and went to a a number of World Cups. You know, you that just you just can't surpass that. You know, um, greatest all-time scorer, amazing. Um, the trouble with history is, of course, the players today and in Timmy's era were playing at least probably twice the number of games that we played in our era. And we played twice the number of games as the guys before, and it's always been thus. So, I mean, in Ray Barts and Johnny Warren's era, they probably played an average of twice a year, I I would guess, right? So those guys used to be in the team for 10 years and have 15 caps, right? Whereas today, if you're in the the Socceroos or Matildas for 10 years, you've got 120, 130 caps probably. So, um, you know, everything's very different. So it's hard to... Uh, it, it's hard to compare. Um, but, you know, one of the best, probably, I mean, I played with some great players, you know, Paul Ocon was an amazingly gifted and elegant player um, just ravaged by injury. Um, Ned Zelich was an incredibly gifted, skilled player, just glide past players, you know, and people forget he played in a great Borussia Dortmund team. And, you um, And so some really great players, but probably the best was Harry. You know, it takes a lot for me to, you know, accept that Timmy is, you know, the greatest. When I was there with Harry and I saw what he did, even as a very young kid, you know, those, let me put it this way. I put those two guys, you know, I say, look, you guys battle it out. I don't care who wins it (laughs) because, you know, you're you're both just incredible. Harry was something special. Harry also uh, did what Craig Johnston did. Harry performed, and, and with Mark Paduka. Um They performed for Leeds, and then Harry with Liverpool, even though he was injury-ravaged. They built much of the game back here, and, and, um, and I don't think the game gives them enough credit for that. Like, there's people... Look what happened when Liverpool came and played against Melbourne Victory or whoever else, and they had 95,000 people at MCG. Why do you think that is? There's not, there's not 95,000 um, English expats from Liverpool live in Melbourne or Australia, that is because a whole generation of football fans in this country watched Craig Johnston playing for Liverpool in an extraordinary team, you know, with S and uh, Dalgleish and it was an unbelievable team, winning the European Cup in 84. He built much of what you see today. Craig Johnston, by doing that, Harry was also, I think, had that level of recognition Dukes was unbelievable, but kids loved Harry, right? And and, and that 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 built tens and if not hundreds of thousands of new football fans in the country were built by watching and 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 thrilling to what Harry Kehl did. Uh, and that that's pretty special.
0: Definitely agree with that. That's that's how I got into it. Two thousand and six World Cup seeing Timmy Cahill light it up and Harry Kill, amazing. Oh, I I remember watching I even watched it before before we did this interview. I watched the commentary and how you were um I'll be honest if you rightly so frustrated with the decision from the um, the referee giving it the Italians that penalty, but at least we lost to the champions, you know? Unless we, uh, at least we lost to the World Cup winners. I
1: mean, and you always, you know, you're going to get you're going to get those decisions sometimes. That's what World Cups are about. Um, You know, but uh, the thing about all those World Cups is we, you you know, football fans will understand, but when we're on air with Les and that, we also, we understood the power of those moments on the game back here. You know, so SBS were never just commentators or analysts, whatever. We always were very aware of how important those moments were to grow the game back in Australia. It wasn't just about broadcasting, getting numbers. It was about showing Australia the game. And that's why so often our emotion carried over because those moments we knew if we made a quarterfinal at the world cup here, like what is that going to do? You know, and Ukraine would have, I think, been the opponent, you know, it could have been a South Korea, uh, you know, in 2 making a semi-final of a world cup. Look what happened this and the same with the Matildas, you know, there's, from my perspective, as an ex-player, as a football broadcaster, and someone in the game who has a voice, there's always two aspects. One is analysing the technical aspect of the game. Look at the Matildas in the World Cup, in the Olympics. Okay, how are they playing? Are they playing well? Where's the improvement needed? Are they bringing a generation through? Is the young kids coming? How good are they? Where are we based? What's the what's the style of play? Yeah, you know, where are we falling down? That's fine, but there's also always been for us the broader picture of what is it doing for football in Australia? And that's always, e- was equally important to us. Um, and, you know, I look at now, you know, the, the, the future of the game of football should be very bright in Australia if people can stop fighting, stop the politics and actually get down to understanding the power of the game, believing in that and and committing to that instead of committing to their own positions, you know, their own state, uh, you know, their own board position, um, their own club, commit to what football is gonna to bring to the game, commit to the beauty of multiculturalism through football and give to the game, don't, don't take from it, right? Um, and, but if you have a look at, you know, what could happen only in a couple of years in 2023, I mean, the Matildas doubled, more than doubled, the record broadcast audience for a women's team sport in Australian history, okay? In their second group game against Sweden, and most of Australia, I think, wouldn't even know that Sweden are very good in football. You know what I mean? Like it's not a a historic, they'd know the USA are the world champions. So why Sweden? Well, it's not about Sweden, it's about Matildas. They more than doubled the TV audience in history. Like that is staggering. And then they went into the quarterfinal, put another eight hundred thousand on. I'd got so I don't know what the last one was, but they they got up. They were one and a half million in the first game. Then they got to like two point three million. So they put another million on. They already broke the record. Put another million on. And then uh, and then they've got the third and fourth playoff and so on. We don't know what. But can you imagine if they get to a quarterfinal, semi final? or a final of the 2023 World Cup. Don't even worry about the record books. Like, and this, and we had, you know, with the greatest respect to cricket, you know, which I, you know, I used to play cricket and and I love the Australian women's cricket team because they're real warriors for gender equality. I love them. But they had the World Cup at home in Australia and they were in the World Cup final on free-to-air TV and the Matildas beat that broadcast record in the second group game of an Olympics. like that is staggering okay that is staggering that is the power of football it is very significant if they make the semi-final or final you're talking about you know half the country watching them okay and that's the beauty of the game and people need to respect that and and respect the fact that if you are fortunate enough to play a role in football and to have some form of governance or management or so you have a big responsibility you know, it's not about you. It's about the game and the country and what the game can do for the country, can do for women, can do for young females, can do for gender equality. Uh, and you have to live up to that. Okay, And if you don't, then you're selling the game short. And that's the biggest crime there is.
0: Definitely, definitely. Big, big things going on there. I wanted to thank you very much for your time, Craig. Hopefully, sorry, sorry. Hopefully Sydney opens up soon and... We get to come down and uh, maybe do a couple of amnesty runs with you and then maybe go maybe go to the park and have a bit of a three-on-three, you know. <laughs> uh, don't slow tackle any of us, please. All of us have got bad <laughs> ankles, I'll be honest. But... <laughs> <laughs> All good. No, nah, I appreciate
1: looking it. Looking busy. Definitely Just keep busy. screaming at everyone. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. What are you doing?
0: Don't worry. You're going to have... you. You're gonna you're gonna have a lot of issues trying to get over Asher's voice. To be honest, if you're but <laughs> now, it'll yeah, be all good. It'll
1: cool. be great. One day we play together. That's what it's all about.
0: Definitely, definitely. Thank you very much, Craig. Good to chat. My pleasure. We'll, we'll see you soon, we'll huh? You Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All the best.